Cameron and Alex, a short story by E.A. Sandiland. Ship me somewhere east of Suez, where the best is like the worst, where there ain't no Ten Commandments, and a man can raise a thirst, by Rudyard Kipling. Spoken and unspoken. I used to love spending long summers in the 1970s on my uncle's sheep farms in southern Scotland. Cameron farmed Lampton Hill, just outside Cooter in Lanarkshire, all of his life. Alex had served in, lived in the small upper farm, but that was before my time. As young men, they farmed the middle farm together. With a wife and family to support, Alex has had to move to earn enough to create a life for everyone. He farmed dairy and later tenanted a larger place with a fine house and decent pasture. Cameron never left Lampton Hill. He worked the farm there all his life. He never married. He, he paid rent for the laird, worked hard every day tried to limit work on Sundays and lived a life of moderation befitting an elder of the Free Kirk. My Scottish family was a large family and there were always small photographs of wartime service of men in uniform. I expected to see them there in the same way I expected to see ornaments and I showed a similar level of disinterest in both. When I was 16 I joined the Merchant Navy as an officer cadet. I flew to the Middle East to join my first ship and spent nearly six months away. We discharged consumer goods in the Persian Gulf, then steamed across to East Africa to load coffee and sizzle to the United States. We spent a month working along the eastern seaboard, then back across the Atlantic and through Suez to the Gulf, where I flew home. That was my first trip. I felt I'd grown up, but looking back, I think it was all in my head. New York had made a big impression on me, as in New Orleans and Houston. Savannah, Georgia was the kind of town I didn't think existed, a perfectly preserved part of the Old South. But Mombasa in Kenya had been the first exotic place I'd visited. Loading sacks of coffee by hand is slow work, and there weren't always sacks to load. So there was a chance to go on safari of a sort in the Seaman's Mission minibus, and a chance to get to the beach and swim in the Indian Ocean. Back on the farm, I talked to Alex about the trip, boasting, if I'm honest, and when I spoke about Mombasa, Uncle Alex said he'd been there too. It was the spring of 1980 when we talked. His memory was different from mine. He mainly remembered the smell, the stench. I asked him about it. He'd sailed from the Clyde on the RMS Strathaird early in 1942 with the 1st Battalion of the Seaford Highlanders. Coincidentally, I'd been discharged from the MS Strath Devon, another P&O ship, albeit a different one, in a different age. They had stopped off in Cape Town for training. There hadn't been much training until then, just basic training and a few drills. It had felt good to get off, to get ashore, to breathe. They called at Mombasa for bunkers and provisions before arriving in Bombay. Conditions had been crowded and basic. The ship was old. It had seen much better days. Their destination had been unknown. Mombasa had been an assault on the senses. It was the first time we'd talked about his wartime experience. Looking back, I wish we'd talked much, much more. Some things were spoken of, but most things were left unspoken. It hadn't felt right to probe, to push. His story was more interesting than mine, and it was more modestly told. Winter morning on Lampton Hill. The sun was only just rising over Cooterfell as Cameron filled a kettle and put on the Ray Rayburn to boil for tea. It was a crisp December morning in 1941. Alex sat on the settle rubbing his eyes and trying to wake up. They'd have breakfast later. For now it was just a cup of tea to help get moving, to get warm through. Alex pulled on his wellies and his overcoat and finally put on his bonnet. He took care to button up before he went outside. There was a hard frost. It was a late winter morning. Spring was still far away. He fetched his dog Jess and they walked the farm road towards the hill. 
He had some sheep to move from the fell to the lower pastures. Hardy Scottish black-faced gimmers to move to better grass. They would stay there until shearing in a couple of months, then make the final journey to Bigger Mart. Cameron went through the same morning ritual, putting on his outer clothes quickly in that cold, cold scullery at the back of the house. He walked across the shed to start up the track to feel the ground crack as he walked. The mud, the muck, the ice. The Ferguson started after a few attempts, spluttering into life and belching out the familiar diesel fumes. He wedged some fence posts onto the tractor, some replacement fence wire and a few tools, a spade and a mell. He'd clear some debris from the burn which was backing up and likely flood the bottom field, and he'd make a start on fixing the fence. At around eight o'clock, Cameron drove the tractor down to the main road and picked up the morning post from the letterbox there. He put it in his outer coat pocket and headed back to the house. He, he squinted as the low winter sun shone in his eyes and he steered the tractor around the worst of the potholes. Alice was already cooking breakfast. The kettle was on. He was melting lard in the frying pan and about to throw in the flat sausage size slices and the bacon rashers. The old oil, oil cloth had been wiped clean. Two places had been set and a plate of bread and butter was placed in the middle. They sat down to eat their breakfast together, then afterwards started to sort through that day's mail. Alex's letter. Alex picked up the letters addressed to him. One was a statement of account from the Royal Bank and another a receipt from Lampton Mill for feed. He read through them and put them to one side on the kitchen table. He carefully moved them away from his place at the table so they wouldn't get splashed by the tea or the food. He'd file them in the dresser drawer when he got up. He instinctively knew what the last letter was. He opened it. He felt slightly as if someone else was looking at himself opening the letter. Was this an out-of-body experience? It wasn't something he'd ever felt before. He was surprised to feel a slight shake in his hands as he used a clean knife to slice open the manila envelope. It was his call-up papers. He'd been expecting them, but still the news wouldn't quite sink in. It didn't quite feel real. He found himself staring at the paper, reading it and rereading it again, but finding that he hadn't quite absorbed the information. He could feel his brain moving slowly and that the words were reaching him as if through treacle. Alice knew one or two lads who had already been called up. He and Cameron knew most of them, probably all of them. It was a small community. Some of them he knew well, others not so well. He knew enough to know the worries their families had for them and the intensities of the prayers at the Kirk for their safety. Whatever anxiety he felt, though, he, he always kept it to himself. He didn't want Cameron worrying about him. He'd have enough to do running the farm and there were all the changes to life on the home front. They'd begin to get used to calling it the home front. It, it was a new language of war. He sensed Cameron watching him. He'd have guessed what the letter was. He would know what it meant. It had been an almost unspoken fact between them that this day would come. Alex felt Cameron stare before he looked up. He looked up slowly, trying to be composed, trying not to betray any sense of doubt or fear. Did he feel fear? He wasn't quite sure what he felt. He showed the papers to Cameron. He could tell Cameron already knew what they were. He could tell Cameron was trying to be stoic also, to not to give away too much of how he felt or how, so as not to upset his brother. It would hit Cameron hard too, doing the work of two men, while worrying every day as to how Alex was doing and whether he was all right. They said a few words. What was there to say? That was it then, and got back outside to get on with the work of the day. Cameron got back on the tractor and headed down to carry on with the fencing. It felt like a very different day from the one before breakfast. He wasn't quite sure how he'd 
felt and how he'd coped managing the farm on his own. But he knew inside he'd find a way. More on his mind was concern for Alex, this being away from home, the hardships of basic training, and then, well, well then, who knew what? And he had this odd feeling of being left out, of being left behind, which made him feel he was being selfish, made him feel guilty, and wasn't a train of thought he wanted to pursue. Alex threw some bags of feed into the barrow and went across to the far shed to feed the steers. He then went off to walk the hill. He checked on the state of the fences and looked for any sheep that might be in difficulty or have strayed. It, it cleared his head. After tea, Alex cycled into Bigger and managed a couple of pints at the Elphingston. There weren't many in, but the crack was good and he had a couple of games of dominoes. He didn't mention being called up. What would be the point of that? It was cold and dark riding back. The road's deadly quiet. His bike light's not all that great. But he was glad he'd gone. He was glad he'd made the effort. It had been a slow day. It had really dragged. But he felt cheered up just by the chance to sit there and chat in the pub. Chat about things that didn't really matter. When he got back, he didn't manage to sleep at all that well. This was unusual for him. He usually went out like a light. He got up quietly about 2am and made a cup of tea and sat alone with his thoughts. There was so much he didn't know and so much he needed to find out. If only he could switch off and stop overthinking. Cameron's Day Cameron had walked across the shed after breakfast and loaded a few posts on the Ferguson. He spent the best part of the day mending fences. It, it needed doing. Putting in the posts and swinging the mail was something he could do without thinking. He'd done it a thousand times. He hit a rhythm and swung the long-handled mail with unerring accuracy. Well, well, almost. It was always a shock if he was slightly off target, an act that jarred him back into the present, into full consciousness every time it happened. It didn't happen very often. He wasn't quite sure how he felt. Numb, perhaps, he thought, but that wasn't quite right. His mind was racing, yet at the same time it didn't seem to be functioning at all. He'd miss Alex. He'd miss them rubbing along together every day. And he was worried for him. He knew he'd pray for him daily. Part of him had known for a long time this day would come, but part of him also felt it might only happen to other people, other families, and he'd felt guilty for having this thought. They'd both registered together at Bigger Municipal Hall, joining the queue outside, waiting patiently and chatting with old school friends. They didn't often see so many faces they knew, sometimes at the mart perhaps, or on gala day. Since they registered, friends and neighbours had gradually been called up to fight. Even in the reserve professions, not everyone stayed behind. Lads were being mobilised from Albion Motors, from Cuthbertson's, Cubbies, everybody called it, from the Gasworks, from the Caledonian Railway, and from the many surrounding farms. The town was changing as one by one the young men had grown up with left, and new people arrived, a consequence of war. As the oldest brother, Cameron expected to stay and manage the farm, although nothing was certain. So many were being called up, and who was eligible seemed to change on a daily basis. Cameron accepted that he'd be the one to fight. He'd done so without demur. It wasn't his decision to make. It would affect him profoundly, but fate was fate. At dinner time and later at tea, Cameron and Alex talked a bit. A bit, but not that much. They never had, never needed to. They both knew that things were about to change. Each could see it in the other's eyes, although they couldn't bring themselves quite to think about how. Fear the worst and pray for the best, wasn't that the expression? Cameron dare not fear for the worst. At the end of the day before retiring to bed, Cameron prayed for his brother. He prayed too for the lads called up from every farm, village and town. 
Please keep them safe and return them to us. And he prayed for himself that he might find solace each day, overcome loneliness, and cope alone doing the work of two men. He felt weary, very, very weary, as he drifted into sleep. Alex mobilizes. Two weeks later, Alex was given a medical and bigger and his service number. He was then told to take seven days leave. He tried to make the most of every day, but his mind was racing, wondering what was ahead. There was a lot he didn't know. When the, the day came, Cameron drove Alex down to Bigger Station to catch the train to Stirling. Alex would use his travel warrant for the first time. They'd both rehearsed this morning in their minds several times over recent days. It was a chilly morning which they'd expected, but they hadn't factored in that the van wouldn't start. The van took a bit of, to get going that morning. It did, just didn't want to crank into life. Alex had to fret that he might miss the train. It wasn't a lot of use to Cameron who opened the bonnet let the fuel evaporate from the flooded carburetor, tried to show patience, tried cranking again. All Alex was thinking was how he'd explain being late, what would be the consequences. He just didn't want to start out that way. The van started and they got to the station with a decent amount of time to spare. There was no big send-off. They were too long into the war by then. It was just a few families on the platform spending the last few minutes together, most of them trying to hold it all in. From the train window, Alex could see Stirling Castle looming above the station as he gathered his kit. Stirling looked foreboding that day, the dark rock of the castle with darker clouds above. There was no time to brood, though, as Alex disembarked and climbed into the truck. It seemed to be having to do everything at double speed. It was all part of the game, a game he'd have to get used to. He found out soon enough that he was a rookie. It was the word he'd heard more than any other in that first few days at camp. He felt self-conscious training in regular clothes with the other rookies. He saw the amusement on the faces of those who got there before them. Where your arm should be when marching, precisely how to salute, the consequences of getting it wrong. He didn't think he'd ever felt so awkward and, and out of place. Receiving his uniform a few days later had been a relief. At least he looked like he fitted in. He was issued with a gas mask and later his identity disc, his dog tag with his number on. Finally he was issued with his rifle, he started to feel like he was a soldier. Alex began to adjust to camp life. The routine didn't phase him. The camp had clearly expanded because of the war. There was a need to train and deploy so many men in short order. The place felt like it was creaking under the strain. The, the Nissan huts they slept in took a bit of getting used to. The structures of corrugated iron with no walls in them. Although at home the house could be freezing in winter up on the hill, and, and this was no great hardship. Training was by turns mind-numbing, exhausting and brutal. He went along with it. He kept his head down. He knew they were being prepared for something far worse, far tougher. Hard work on the farm all his life helped him. He was fit. Not all the lads were. Some really weren't. And he was taller than most, which was not always a good thing when trying to avoid the gaze of an NCO. Not being noticed was a measure of success. He tried not to be noticed every day. Heading off. Alex's battalion boarded the RMS Strathaird at Clydebank. The docks were in surprisingly good shape, the cranes intact and working, the channel clear. All around were blown out buildings from the carpet bombing of the previous spring. All of Scotland knew the story of those devastating two days. Some streets were still impassable with rubble and debris left where it fell. The main roads were clear, residents had gone, moved to Lanark, Dumbarton and Renfrew, seeking a place of safety, those who survived anyway. The Highlanders lined up on the dock with their shipping index cards in hand. 
These were taken and swapped for a paper that would shape Alex's life for the next few weeks. It showed the deck and section where he'd be living. The deck and section number was E2, his mess number was 207, and his place at a long table was 12. That was all he would need to know. As they boarded, there was a lot to take in. The wide staircases and walnut veneers seemed to have taken a hammering as the water was told, as boots replaced dress shoes, and as kit bags and kit replaced trunks and porters, but they were still grand. Alex was slow off the mark in the rush to get a hammock, but he got one all the same, albeit not in the best position. He put a bag in the overhead rack, which was already overflowing, and pushed the remainder of his stuff under a table. His rifle would be stored in the hold. It was cramped. They would live, eat and sleep in this space. There would be 20 or so large tables in this section to accommodate maybe 400 men. There had to be a better word than cramped to describe it, as none was forthcoming. It was really cramped. He didn't think he'd ever felt so cramped. He took his place as a meal was served, and it was spam bread and butter and tea. Alex ate the meal slowly. He hadn't been given any orders, and he didn't know where they were heading. Inevitably, the talk turned to sharing snippets of information people had heard, rumours really. There was a lot of talk about U-boats and torpedoes, always torpedoes. The sinking of the Athenia early in the war had been big news at the time. It, it had been all that people could talk about. Since then, fear of torpedo attack had grown and grown. As a ship slipped its berth and steamed down the Clyde estuary, they were called to a boat drill. They all stood side by side on this crowded boat deck, trying to make out the tannoy and hear what the crew were saying. Please God, it wouldn't come to this. He didn't fancy his chances if they did. He accepted his life jacket, blocks of cork in canvas, and went back to E-deck to write his name, rank and number on it. It was his for the duration. Later he queued at the naffy for a beer, enamel mug in hand. It was a queue all right. He just had the one. He was feeling a bit queasy, but he couldn't face the queue again in any case. He climbed into his hammock for the first time. He'd been very self-conscious getting into it. He'd watched some of the others and put a shoulder in first and rolled his weight onto it. It seemed to work, but he spent the night hardly daring to move, feeling the hammock sway and, and praying for sleep. In the morning he noticed that the destroyer which had been accompanying them had slipped away and couldn't be seen. It felt like they'd been left on their own. At sea on land. Alex settled into the routine of life on the ship. It was a bit more of a chaotic life than he was used to, particularly in the first few days as people adjusted. It felt like a pretense of routine. Reveille was at 0600 hours, same as camp. Breakfast was at 0800, at least that was the target, sometimes it was. They were inspected at 10 o'clock, and it was always a rush to be ready, which was probably the point. Dinner was at 1300, and tea at 1800. It was amazing how the meals loomed large. It was the same on the farm, but, but not like this. They became easily the most important part of the day. Lights out was 2200. Alex fell into this routine, did the tasks assigned to him each day, and he played cards, lots of cards, pontoon and knockout whisk, breathing in the stale tobacco air. He slowly adjusted to the hammock, grateful he wasn't sleeping on the floor or a table like some. It was starting to feel like a home. They first saw land on the port side. Portugal, they'd been told. A cruiser had picked them up and was sailing alongside them. Later they saw French Morocco, their first sighting of Africa. The men knew they'd be docking in Freetown in Sierra Leone, but knew nothing officially beyond that. There were rumours, of course. He'd seen Freetown on Pathy News at the Corn Exchange in Bigger, the only cinema in the town. They always paid to sit on the wooden benches and move the 
the better seats once the lights were down. It was like a badge of honour. The movies were old ones, never new ones. They could be accompanied by unexpected breaks when projectors had to stop the action and splice the film back together before continuing. Once the war started, each screening began with Pathé News. It gave a sense of what was happening in the war and wider world affairs, although how close the newsreels came to reality was anyone's guess. This would be a taste of reality, he thought, as the mountains on the horizon came clear into view. The seawater turned brown and murkier as they approached the harbour, pilot boat alongside, the pilot having boarded. T- two tugboats pushed the Strathaird alongside, each visibly struggling and belching acrid smoke as Alec and his pals stood on deck to watch. The Royal Fleet Auxiliary had a ship alongside, cranes working hard to replenish supplies. There were a couple of destroyers alongside also, and cargo ships out at anchor. He'd spoken to the crew the previous day and listened carefully to what they had to say about Freetown. They seemed to have been many times before. Essentially, the advice was to avoid the flies and mosquitoes, the bugs in the water, and the hawkers on the streets, who they assured him were all out to get you. He was patient in his listening, even when the stories began to repeat. But even so, he wasn't prepared for the place. This was the first time he'd set foot on land outside of Scotland. It couldn't have been more different. He rolled down the sleeves on his uniform and smeared insect repellent on his exposed skin. He took a canteen as him to have a safe source of water, and they went ashore as a group. But other than this, Alex did, did want to get a proper sense of the place, to embrace its exotic nature. They pushed through the crowd on the dock as best they could while looking all around them for any hazards, including sacks falling from the slings of overhead cranes. Young children were pulling at their trouser legs to get attention. Alex didn't know he could usually give them beyond a sympathetic smile and a few coins. They dodged the pools of who knew what, some sort of foul-smelling slurry, and made their way to the gate. There was, a, there was an order to parts of Freetown. Construction around the docks in the town were well advanced, and they skirted around the sealed-off areas. There were neat official-looking buildings among the more downtrodden wooden structures. There were new buildings emerging. The main streets were wide and they could stride out with confidence. That there was chaos too. They nodded to the women walking by with the bundles balanced on their heads. They exchanged a few words with other squaddies. They tried not to get too involved with the street sellers. Their main mission was to find a bar and they found a good one, drinking almost cold beer into the sun, passing the time with a group of American servicemen based there. Afterwards he bought some postcards and sent them home, riding with care so as to give not too much work to the censors. Cape Town was next up when they arrived after hitting a storm approaching the Cape. It had felt devastating on ship. They hit the storm head on, the ship pitching and tossing in the huge waves, the propellers racing and shuddering each time they were out of the water. Many men were above deck, heaving over the rails. Below decks was a bomb site with hammocks, packs and kits strewn across every surface. There were times when you wondered if the power of the sea would just be too much. The view of Cape Town as the approach was breathtaking. Cable Mountain dominating the bay. As they berthed and disembarked, the trucks were waiting and they climbed on board of their kit. Their rifles would reach them later. He tried to take in the view, but had to concentrate on staying seated and not being thrown around in the back of the truck. The camp at Youngsfield was organised, but you could see that it expanded way beyond its original purpose. There was a hastily erected tented city with big marquees as mess halls swamping the original camp buildings. Alex liked it there. He was glad of the respite from the ship. The camp buildings were mainly used by the South Africans, the Union Defence Force and the Volunteer Active Citizen Force regiments. 
They seemed a size bigger and much better fed than the Highlanders and other British squaddies who all lived under canvas. The sick were taken across to Weinberg military base where a well-equipped hospital was situated. Alex went there on export duty more than once. It was another world with its manicured lawns and fine-looking clapperboard officers club. There was no chance of him ever setting foot in there. Training became more specific and more intense. They were training for jungle warfare, albeit on hills, mountains and open grassland of the Cape. They still had no orders, but the possibility as to where they would be being deployed was narrowing. Speculation was rife. Before departure, they were each given an armful of jabs. The clouds towered above Mombasa Island as they approached their next destination. The old ship shuddered as they went through the gears, first dead slow ahead, then dead slow astern to stop the momentum and be ready to pick up the pilot. There were cargo ships working the docks, cranes and derricks working overhead, dows waiting in the harbour and fish fishermen paddling out in small craft. Two destroyers were also alongside. His overall impression was of mesmerising movement. It was an assault on the senses, it had the smells, sights and sounds of Africa. It was good to get ashore, good to stretch the legs, but Alex felt far from home. There was the first mail he'd received, that any of them had received. Each of them read every word, sitting together at the big table. He felt happy, he also felt sad, and very homesick, probably for the first time. They would sail out around midday tomorrow, but then there was a chance to go up the road for a few beers, then stepping over the disused trolley tracks with care as they headed for the old town. Turning into Deer Cunt Street to bargain with the Arab and, and Indian trailers, traders in that part of the city. He was aware of the faded grandeur of the buildings, the fretwork, the carving around doorways and balconies, mainly though he focused on staying close to his pals, not getting separated, keeping his hand on top of the cash in his pocket. Back at the docks, they picked up a couple of baskets of fruit, pawpaws and mangoes from the cellars lining the quayside. They hardly knew how to deal with these fruits, but they tasted good. It was back on board that they got the orders. They'd be sailing to Bombay. Alex's War By the time the ship docked in Bombay, Alex was more than ready to stretch his legs, push his shoulders back, and feel some sense of space amongst the madness of the activity on the waterfront. How the people disembarked and got the gear off without loss of life or property was a mystery that stayed with him. After time at sea, even in the cramped conditions of the overflowing jaded liner, it felt like a shock. There wasn't much time to get your bearings, feel your legs steady on the land. As soon as they were off, they were quickly climbing into 30-ton trucks, men and kit. They were transported down to the VT, the Victoria Terminal, the main railway station, to board the train to Agra. He wasn't yet desensitised to the poverty, the sights, the sounds, the smells of so many people in the same place doing all that they could to earn or beg a few rupees, doing all they could to keep themselves and their family alive. It was another shock. By contrast with the camp, Agra had felt like a place of sanity. The air was clear, more or less, the food better, the drill was all right, there was a time for laundry, time to write letters home. It felt like a chance to breathe. It wasn't long ago before the battalion was loaded up in the back of the 30 tonners. Some rode in the Bren gun carriers, while provisions were carried by mules. Over the next few days, the Highlanders moved closer to the front. They crossed the Brahmaputra River and headed for Kohima in the Nagaland region of northeastern India. It wasn't long after arriving that Alex started to go on patrol. The heavy rains made life difficult, the movement slow, 
Snake bites were always a possibility. They were painful but rarely fatal, and the medics were getting better at removing the venom, lancing the wound, and stitching you up. Worse, far worse, was the impact of the refugees. It was a sheer number of desperate people fleeing their homes that hit you as they tried to find sanctuary behind British lines. Among them were the wounded, often surviving of bombers, bombing, often with infected wounds, for some very sadly with gangrene creeping in. There were more refugees, far more, who were simply exhausted, emaciated, and often far too often with dysentery sapping their strength. Alex could never get used to it. He felt he never would get used to it. These impoverished people haunted his dreams. His battalion pushed further towards Sanam in Manipur region. It was there that the fighting grew more intense with the special patrols coming under attack. It was the unexpected lone sniper fire that Alex feared the most as colleagues were picked off without ever seeing their killer. It was useful to at least see who was trying to kill you. They fought back, of course, and went after snipers whenever they encountered losses. Losses, what a word. Friends, comrades who had been killed was who they were. It was challenging to, to never quite be sure which side the locals were backing. Sometimes they'd outright hostile the troops, throwing rocks and projectiles at patrols, but often they revealed nothing. This caused a deeper uncertainty and a sinking feeling in Alex. What might they be thinking? What, what might they be planning to do? As time progressed, they became to rely more and more on local guides. Their lives were literally in their hands. Alex came to trust their judgment in more aspects uh, beyond directions and the best path through the jungle. It seemed that guides could read the tea leaves too. They could sense the temperature of local grievances and either warn the troops when to beware or try and resolve whatever complaints they had. This was in a context where malaria was becoming rampant among the soldiers and among the local people. As sufferers weakened, then problems of dysentery set in and made them far worse. Alex, like many others, had to get involved in stretcher parties. Part of the job was to carry people who had been hit, soldiers who had been hit, to the field hospital, such as it was. But more often it was a stretch to stretch of the weak, those falling victim to the fight among, uh, against malaria and dysentery, and maybe falling victim to despair. For Alex, seeing a child expire was the worst, seeing their light go out. There was nowhere to process it to make sense of it. It tore your heart out, shrank your soul, and it happened too often. Cameron's War At breakfast, Cameron turned on the radio news. He'd started to do this every morning since Alex left. The radio was company, but also the news was some sort of window on the world. It gave some sort of insight into the war. This had become part of the new morning routine at breakfast. He switched it on straight after he came in from outside, after he scrubbed his hands and forearms in the scullery sink and before cooking breakfast. On his weekly trip into Biggie, he'd buy a copy of the Glasgow Herald. He'd scan the headlines when he got back to the farm and then read it with care in the evening. The news seemed universally bad, although you had to read between the lines a bit to reach that conclusion. Invariably, there'd be a motivational final paragraph accompanying an article of defeat or retreat. He read them or ignored them, depending on his mood. If he was feeling low, he'd, he'd read them. Some evenings he'd almost believe them. Sometimes he needed hope. More reliable was the news shared by people in the town. He'd chat in the news agent at the post office, the grocery store, the feed mill, down at the mart. The information shared seemed more personal, more relatable, more reliable, even more truthful. 
We'd bump into lads who were back from the front or their parents. There was always fragments of information to fit together from who'd been sent where, from what they'd heard and from what they'd seen. It was rare that there was anything about Alex's regiment, the Seaforth Highlanders. Their war seemed shrouded in mystery, save the occasional postcards and letters sent by Alex. Any correspondent was obviously written with care so as not to trouble the censor. Occasionally still a word would disappear under a splodge of blue-black ink. For Cameron having a little Austin 7 van had been a godsend. It was a 1937 that he bought before the war. It wasn't new, but he was getting better at repairing it and getting it going. He could always call in at Sandy's garage for new parts or anything he couldn't manage. He tried not to do this too often. He had to keep an eye on the petrol ration as he did his whole ration book. He used the van sparingly, but it made life and farm work easier. It also meant he could get to the Kirk in Puta without the long walk or getting the bike out. It was good to arrive with his Sunday boots and trousers still clean and tidy, free, free from mud and splashes and oil from the bike chain. He'd always loved the Sunday service. With so many men away, he'd had to get more involved. He'd found himself doing more of the little jobs that kept the keep Kirk functioning. He'd hand up the hymn books, started locking up afterwards, did some repairs, and looked after the trades when more was needed. It was good to help the minister, and he knew his help was appreciated. There was always a good turnout in the congregation, and it was pleasing to see the comfort the services brought. He'd always felt he had an open door to talk to God. He'd never felt he needed anyone else in the conversation. His prayers always helped him wherever the difficulties were that he faced. This relationship gave him the strength now that he needed it, eased the burden of worrying alone, and would bring God's strength to Alex and his comrades, whatever they were facing. In Bigger stayed the same in some ways. The shop still opened, even with rationing in full force. Kids went to school, people went to work, they went to church on Sunday. In another sense, though, it felt everything was different. There were parallel lives, new people, and new ways of working. The town had been lucky to avoid the bombing raids. They'd often see planes flying overhead, presumably heading for Glasgow's industrial areas and port. They knew things were bad there. The town had also seen people and families move back from the city to feel safer or simply to have a roof over their heads once more. Bigger felt safe. The town had more of a military feel, a wartime feel that still felt new. The local men were coming and going as the army called them up, sent them home on leave, or on sad occasions invalided them out. For those who didn't return, thankfully rare, there were funerals of military honours, uniforms were a normal part of life. As the farms gradually lost more manpower, the land girls came based in the town. New wooden huts were built for the purpose, painted green so as not to stand out. They were needed, they were welcome, they settled in. After the fall of France, Polish soldiers were based in Bigger. They'd been settled in for a year or so now. They'd probably been the biggest change in the town. It was the first time people in the town really knew what it felt like to be in a war. It had felt like a dark time. There was apprehension that there might be what happened next after the retreat from Dunkirk. Alongside this, there was the change of having hundreds of Polish servicemen living, training, working, and getting out and about in the town. They brought energy and clearly appreciated their new home. Cameron knew the shopkeepers were happy. The shops he went to all said they were doing nicely despite the war and the shortages. He imagined the tobacconists, the pubs, the picture house were all doing well too, remarkably well. 
Seeing the Polish troops drilling in Bigger Park or doing cross-country runs for the Burn Braves had brought a new life to the town and they'd be there to defend them if it ever came to that. Back on the farm, Cameron worked hard to keep things going. He knew the country needed food, but he'd have worked hard anyway. He took a lot of pride in his farm. Most things he could manage on his own, but he got help with the shearing, the haymaking and for harvesting. Most of this was his neighbours chipping in as he did for them. This was nothing new. They'd always had to help each other in busy times, each other out, whether there was a war on or not. He knew some of the maintenance had slipped a bit and the garden was untidy, but by and large he managed on his own, working that extra bit harder, that extra bit longer. Alex's journey. Alex already knew the signs. He knew the symptoms when malaria hit him for a second time. He'd seen people go down with it often enough. He'd gone through it before, but for other reason, this time things were far, far worse. It had started with him thinking he might have the flu, but not for long. This time he was wise to it, not that it helped him, as nothing seemed to work in staving it off. Every part of him ached, really ached. He didn't think he'd ever felt so tired. He just had nothing left. He couldn't keep warm and was shaking non-stop. He couldn't keep anything down, even the small amounts of tea he was drinking. In the worst moments, there were times when he felt that was it. The, the fever was just getting worse. At the field hospital, they diagnosed jaundice too. This wasn't a surprise to him. On the odd day when he tried to shave, he'd seen the dark yellow in the eyes, on his skin. He'd felt the pain in his chest and he knew what it meant. He'd heard enough stories, seen enough good, good friends struck down. All his pals had recovered from it, but he just wished he had the strength to fight it. More strength. When he was deemed to be well enough, he got the order to transfer to New Delhi. They promised him better care, more medical staff, better supplies, well away from the front line. It was one of six helped into the truck just after dawn, the breeze feeling cool and refreshing at that time of the morning, chilling the sweat on his skin. They travelled together by truck and, rain, and train. It was a journey of around 1,500 miles as the crow flies, but the crow wasn't flying. Alex lost track of the time it took, semi-dozing, not always sure when the day had ended and a new one began. He felt terrible. They'd stopped in the Sam. He remembered that. He was grateful the mountain air, clear and cool. And they'd stopped in Lucknow. Stopped more than one night there for some reason to do with the train. They'd made do as best they could in makeshift camp beds in some sort of hall. The opportunity to recover in New Delhi brought some sort of relief. The hospital was filled beyond overflowing and the strain on faces of the medics was there to see. But there was an order to it. There was food, medicine and clean latrines. One morning came, he wasn't sure how long he'd been there, and a young lance corporal appeared next to him. He looked bright, very bright. His face was clean shaven and his uniform neat. He br brought a repatriation form with him and he tried to instill some of his old good humour into Alex. He tried to get a response, something more than weary recognition. He talked up what it'd be like to get home and the welcome that'd be waiting for him. Alex was glad of his efforts, glad of his energy, but a watery smile was the best he could do. It must have been around midnight when he was told they were moving. He'd been in and out of sleep, having deeply disturbing dreams, when all the lights came on in his wards, and medics started to bristle around with efficiency. Eight of them were being ready to be sent home. His kit, such as it was, was being packed for him. He moved his head and saw his enamel army mug being packed and felt relieved. He needed it for water, beer, tea, soup, 
shaving. Couldn't imagine how he'd manage on the journey without it. He didn't feel the strength to ask for a new one. They'd been helped onto the truck, the medics loading their kits behind them and pointing out the, out the blankets, the quinine, the antimalarials and the tablets for, for some other purpose that he didn't quite recall. They travelled by truck and train to, Mont to Bombay, dropping off in Diolali, where there was further medical assessments, injections. His head had been banging. He'd felt the bump in the road every time a train rattled over the points. Any stop was a relief. In Bombay, they waited in a warehouse at the docks. It was teeming with life. There were soldiers coming and going. There were many more local people who just seemed to be needed to make all of this happen. Alex spent most of his time with his eyes closed, trying and failing to make the sound go away, trying and failing to ease his nauseous headache. He sipped water from his canteen each time his mouth felt dry. He knew what conditions on the ship would be like, but surprisingly they were a bit better. Under the care of the medics, he didn't have to queue at the naffy. The sick bay layout gave a bit more room, albeit not much. His kit was close at hand, and the few weeks' wages he'd been given on boarding was safe in his chest pocket. He tried to stay out of the heat. It would be hot on deck. There was no place to sit and convalesce, as there might be on an ocean liner. This was a crowded troop ship, with little space to move, and the endless sound of boots on steel decks. They docked him on Basava bunkers, provisions and fresh water. He stayed on board and was glad when they sailed. He just didn't feel strong. They steamed up the Red Sea to Suez, the mountains looming on either side as they went through the Gulf of Aden, where a destroyer picked them up and sailed alongside them. The ship anchored in the Bitter Lakes to wait their slot in the convoy north through the canal. Then slowly, slowly they approached Port Said. The little boat swarmed around them and the cellar set up stalls on deck. Alex wasn't tempted to bargain for goods he didn't particularly want. He didn't have the energy. In different times he might have asked after the adverts for Johnny Walker whiskey and pear stout that stood out against the backdrop of painted buildings of the city. Not this time though, he just felt so rubbish. The Royal Navy escort stepped up as he entered the Mediterranean, leaving Suez behind them, and he could sense more tension around. Extra lookouts were posted on the ship. Things went smoothly, though, and he was glad to spend his days drinking naffy tea and eating the stews and potted meat sandwiches and starting to taste food again. He could feel some self sense of his old self starting to return, albeit a much weakened one. They reached the Gibraltar Straits after a few days of uneventful sailing, Europe to the right, Africa to the left. The escort changed, a cruiser picking them up, and they kept the coast of Portugal on the starboard side as they headed for home. Arranging in Liverpool had felt like a shock. It was the cold, damp air. It was the voices. It was the movement and impatience as people were starting to jockey and disembark. It was the dock itself, with derricks swinging out, with cargo nets full of equipment, and the need to get you, keep your wits about you to keep safe. Alex had his kit bag with his railway warrant in his pocket. He was about to make the last stage of the journey up to Bigger. It was still a long way to go, but it was the last leg of the journey. Arriving home. Cameron had given the van a bit of a tidy up that morning, cleaning out the back to make it easier to stow Alex's kit. He'd cranked it up and driven down into Bigger early, picking up some grosses, getting what he could as best the ration book would allow. He stopped for fuel and chatted with Sandy at the garage, who knew Alex would be back that afternoon. He parked outside the station. There were a few people about, but it wasn't heaving. He sat for a while with the window down, taking the time to think, to get ready to meet Alex. 
He was excited, of course he was, but he had a few butterflies too, a slight sense of anxiety. He didn't really have a sense of how Alex would be after the illness and, and how he might be after what he'd seen and experienced. As he walked into the station and through to the platform, there were a few families already there. There were parents waiting for sons and wives and children waiting for husbands, their father. There were other townspeople too meeting friends and family off the train for whom today was just another day. Alex was speaking to the porter, tipping him in advance to make sure there'd be help with Alex's bags, when he heard a slight gasp from someone and looked to see the steam above the trees. The train was approaching them. People naturally moved forwards towards the edge of the platform and the station manager had a word here and there to keep people back. As the train came to a stop, it seemed like an age before the doors opened. Cameron could see Alex through the discoloured glass. He was letting people go before him and slowly, it seemed to Cameron, getting to his feet. Cameron met Alex at the carriage door, took his small bag, let him step out and then clasped him with both hands just above the elbows. They could both feel the warmth spreading between them. Alex could feel Cameron's strength. They walked slowly to the guard's van. Alex pointed out his kit to the porter. Cameron noticed his pallor, his shortness of breath. He walked slowly alongside Alex, directing the car. He wanted to reach out and help him across the yard, but he knew that wouldn't be welcomed. Cameron got Alex comfortably in the passenger seat and opened the back doors of the van and helped the porter put the bags in the back. He tipped him again. He was just so glad of the help. Cameron cranked up the van, then they got back inside and released the brake. They were on their way back to the farm. As they left the station yard, Cameron gave a brief half-wave to one of the other families as they passed. He tried not to grin. He drove slowly through the town, then out on the Cooter Road, the old Roman road, towards the farm. He kept glancing across to his left to Alex, partly to see if he was all right, partly just to have him home, just pleased. As Lampton Hill came into view, he saw Alex shuffle a bit in his seat and the beginnings of a smile. Life. For Cameron, having Alex back was a huge relief. It was a source of strength and companionship. He prayed every day for Alex's safe return and now prayed for his ongoing recovery. He knew Alex needed rest, that he needed to take things steadily until his strength came back. It wasn't easy to tell him. Even encouraging not to rise until breakfast had been of limited success. Dr. Scott called in at the start of every week. The district nurse came every Friday. Alex would leave, Cameron would leave them in peace with Alex, but would always talk to them afterwards as they were getting into their car. What did they think? How was he doing? What more did he need? The answer was always the same. Rest, patience, and keep doing what you're doing. As days went by, Cameron tried to get Alex to take things slowly. There were no light duties on the farm, but he tried to think of them. They would move the sheep together. They would work together in the garden, tending vegetables and fruit bushes. They would talk a little as they worked about the last, war, last year, about their experiences they'd had. Cameron knew not to push too hard. Alex shared some bits and pieces about his life in the army, but, but not the worst stuff. They'd gone into a new routine by then, little by little, started to get back to something more like the old routine. Um, Alex started to get his colour back. His back became straighter. He looked stronger. They'd both lost track of the weeks that had passed by, but each day seemed better than the one before. Alex started sifting through the, the mail each day as he had done before. 
The only surprise is we normally feed prices or change it in orders due to shortages of supply. One Saturday came when Alex checked his bike and rode into Bigger for a few pints at the Elf with the lunchtime crowd. He sat at the table with a couple of lads who were back on leave and another invalided out. They would look at each other over the top of the dominoes and with a glance share a sense of what things have been like. They could talk quietly and it was easy. They all seemed to understand the times of boredom, of worry, of fear, of horror and of the pain that went with war. Back on the farm, Alex felt able to do more and more. He and Cameron were able to share more of the work. Sometimes they would work together when they, and when they needed a job that needed two men. They would also work alone on different jobs when that made more sense, just as they had done before. They ate together during the day and in the evening settled down their armchairs around the fire to read, talk and listen to the radio. It was great to be back in the old routine, yet they both knew it had changed profoundly. Understanding. When my conversation with Uncle Alex came to an end, I felt a bit overwhelmed, drained even. I'd always felt close to him. At the same time, I realised how little I knew about his life. It felt slightly awkward as we both stood up and walked away. It felt like a spell was being broken, but I felt closer to him. I think we both felt closer. There was something that had been shared between us. I thought I understood my Uncle Cameron so much better too and why he lived his life the way in the, he did. Faith, the Kirk and community was central to him, as was the well-being of the farm. He had an inner strength and I began to see where it came from. It was an admirable, admirable life, a word I never used very much. They were both different but rubbed along together well. Maybe they'd always been different, but also maybe these war years had played a part in that. Someone in a war office with the stroke of the pen could determine who went to war and who stayed at home. The consequences were life-changing, at least for the ones like Alex who returned home. When I was with either of them, we'd talk about the events of that day and we'd talk about what we do tomorrow. We'd talk about the things we needed to do. We didn't sit and talk about the past, the past experience, however profound they had been. They weren't part of our day-to-day. I was working now and would never again spend those long summers on the farm. I already missed those days. I missed them even while I was living them, because I knew they would end. I still miss them now. Author's note. Uh, Cameron and Alex is a short story inspired by the wartime experiences of two of my uncles. Both were hill farmers farming difficult land outside Bigger in South Lanarkshire in Scotland, just off the old Roman road. I used to spend my summers there with them and my auntie during the long Scottish school holidays. It's fair to say I wasn't a natural on the farm, but I loved it and I loved being with them. I've changed many of the details of the story, deliberately so. In part this is so I can fill out the gaps in my knowledge, but mainly it's because I've felt uncomfortable assigning feelings to real people who may not have felt the way I thought they had. It didn't feel right. I felt it much easier to write one step removed from them. I've set the story in 1942, a year earlier than my uncle Alex's war experience. Alex's war service is drawn from the records of the campaigns of the 1st Battalion of the Seaf of Highlanders, that being my uncle's regiment. I have Alex demobilising, sorry, about Alex mobilising to Stirling Barracks for basic training, which is where my dad started his national service later, and is a nod to him. The Seaf of Highlanders did serve in the places named though, they lost men to snipers, sadly, and many to disease. We knew my Uncle Alex served in Burma. 
Looking closely at where the Highlanders were based and patrolled, much of this is also in the eastern regions of modern independent India, just to the north of what is now Bangladesh. It was difficult terrain, fighting could be fierce, disease was rife. They put themselves on the line to repel the advance of the Japanese Imperial Army into India. Campaigns could be curtailed by heavy, heavy rain. Uncertainty was the constant, with Burmese insurgents fighting alongside the formidable Japanese 15th Army and its 18th Division. The enemy was often unseen. The villagers may or may not have been on their side. Contemporary first-person's account indicate the desperate struggles of local people, including large numbers of refugees fleeing for their lives from conflict. Many died of disease, including the very young, from dysentery, malaria, jaundice, and untreated wounds. It could be chaotic and heartbreaking. The word tragedy seems wholly inadequate to describe the suffering of their people and their lives sadly cut short. I've drawn from some of these accounts in Alex's experiences and the distressing sights he was exposed to. My uncle Alex was repatriated, suffering from malaria, and once recovered, resumed his life and work on the farm. His actual war service was 1943, when fighting on the Burma front would have been still heavier than that depicted here. My uncle Cameron remained on the farm throughout the war. It was a reserved occupation. I, be I believe his belief in God and commitment to the Free Kirk would have been a comfort to him. It would have helped sustain him. News from Alex would have been infrequent and censored. News on the radio and in the newspapers would be selected. Farm work was hard. The need to produce food was vital to heading off starvation at home. This was particularly so in the phase of the war where the U-boats were the most successful at destroying and disrupting Atlantic convoys. The pressure was on to grow food on British farms, even as the manpower to do so was taken away. From 1943, Italian prisoners based in Thankerton would have been available to work on farms as the manpower crunch really hit. But in 1942, when the story is set, the landings in Italy hadn't yet taken place. A coincidence is another Scottish uncle landed and fought through Italy under Field Marshal Montgomery's command. Prisoners of war from the campaign were often shipped to Scotland. Some even settled once the war had ended. Life in Bigger would be one of change with so many men away and with Land Girl arriving to help the farms and adjusting to the rationing that was imposed. A large change would have been the stationing in Bigger of Polish troops following the defeat in France and the evacuation. Remarkably, Poland's Prime Minister in exile, General Sikorski, who was also leader of the Polish Armed Forces, visited Bigger in December 1940. Such was the scale of the presence in the town. Many soldiers stayed with local families and integrated into town life. These were different times, but ones worth remembering, and lives were changed for the people who lived through them.